Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. My name's Michael Dooney, director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of the show. In today's episode, I'm speaking with gallerist Robert Moratz. He founded his gallery in Hamburg in 2004 and primarily focuses on emerging positions in contemporary photography and photo-based art. I met Robert around the time I opened my gallery on Linienstrasse back in 2013. He has always been someone that I've looked up to for the kind of photography exhibits and the artists he represents. We talk about his initial motivation for opening a photography gallery, some of the lessons learned in 20 years of being in the business of art, the highs and lows of attending art fairs, and some helpful tips for emerging photographers. Be sure to follow Subtext and Discourse Art World Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Robert Morat. And we're recording now. So, Robert Morat, thank you very much for meeting me in your home and having a chat. Thanks for coming over. There's a lot of things I'd like to ask you, actually. And maybe it's easier if we just start kind of at the beginning. I guess I'm curious to know, how did you get interested in photography? The, there's a long story and a short story. Okay, we have time. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the medium length story. Well, I come from a family that has been collecting art for a long time. My grandmother was an art historian. My father's an art historian. I grew up in a house where the latest exhibition or a studio visit were sort of the topic of conversation over dinner. Oh, okay. So it was a, a very normal thing to be thinking about and talking about. My grandmother started collecting etchings and works on paper, old masters, really. My father turned it into a collection that's more concerned with contemporary and modern painting and sculptures. And he opened up into African art and all sorts of uh, things. The only thing that nobody ever was interested in in my family was photographs. Oh, okay. The only fine art photographic print that I ever saw as a child was a Luigi Giri series of still lifes taken in Giorgio Morandi's studio in Bologna because my parents collected Morandi paintings and that was sort of the natural photograph <laughs> to buy for them. And Oh, and a beautiful Herbert List portrait of Morandi that was also in my father's library. But other than that, photographs were not really of interest. So it was the one area where I could make my own discoveries. Really. Oh, right. Yeah. Because a lot of times during my studies then of the history of art, I always felt like, yeah, seen that, been there, you know, uh, it was a little redundant. And then all of a sudden, uh, Wolfgang Kemp in Hamburg started talking about photographs. And there was this entire new field for me to discover, really, as a student at university. Oh, so you were studying art history? I was studying. I came to Hamburg to go to acting school, actually. Oh, really? uh, And then since that didn't work out, it took me two terms a year in acting school to realize that this is the wrong boat. So, And then I went to university and I studied German literature and I went to journalism school and uh, the history of art. But my main focus was really on journalism. And that was also then my first career. Mm-hmm. So uh, after, during university, really, I started interning with magazines and um, I worked in all sorts of editorial offices in and around Hamburg. Hamburg at that time was a very dynamic, busy media town. There was all the publishing was there, or it still is. I mean, Hamburg still is a busy media town. But at that time, we're talking mid-1990s yeah. to early 2000s, that 10 period of time. Uh, there was a lot going on in Hamburg and I worked for different publishing houses and different media. Also, I worked some time for a daily newspaper in Munich, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, but then interned with them. And then I came back to Hamburg and I started working for different magazines. My last job was for TV. I worked for NDR. For, oh, um, yeah. And then during that time, I took an interest in photography that had been born during my studies at university. But then Hamburg was always a place where photographs were exhibited intensively. 
Did the Deistohallen already exist then? No, at that time they didn't. Yeah, well, the Deistohallen of course existed, yeah, but, but the Southern Hall had not been converted into a photography museum yet. Okay. So we're talking the year 2000, 2001, 2002, that time. And also, I was interested in contemporary photography. And in Hamburg, as in many cities around Europe, there would be one or two photography galleries in town, but they would mostly deal in vintage black and white material. So you could look at, I don't know, Cartier-Bresson prints and wonderful things like that. But if you wanted to look at new ideas and new contemporary work in photography, you had to travel. You had yeah. to go to London or to Paris or to New York. All of the work that I was really interested in was not really on display in Hamburg. Also, a lot of friends were photographers because I was an editor, I was a writer, I was on assignment with photographers a lot. Yeah. Um, and we had friendships and they would show me their freelance work and then they would always say, but there's no space for that here. So really the idea to open a gallery came from a certain frustration in my former job. There was a point in time where I felt like this is really getting boring and I didn't learn anything anymore. And also working for TV, everybody takes themselves so incredibly serious and it's, it was no fun. Yeah. And, and then my grandmother passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. And she left me enough money to give me the idea that I could actually start my own business. Yeah. And it was literally a very, it was a, a situation in a dinner, somebody spoke about their work, again, said that there was really no place for that. And I sort of said, well, maybe one should create a place like that. And then everybody looked at me and said, yeah, you should. <laughs> and uh, um, and then I took a good summer thinking about whether this actually made sense, whether this was anything that could actually be uh, sustainable into the future. And I realized how my own interest in contemporary photography was not met by any market. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, well, maybe this is a good moment to do just that. So I came back after that summer in 2003 and I started looking at places and spaces that one could maybe rent out. And I found one and we made it up and we opened in spring of 2004. And that's also when the House of Photography was created. It was wow, okay. pretty much at the, around the same time. And I had found an old storefront, an old shop. Uh, that was walking distance to the Deichtohallen. So all of a sudden there was this little corner in Hamburg where photography would happen or take place. Yeah, that's amazing that it kind of was almost in the ether that something was happening and then it kind of came through you that, okay, well, I can create a space. Yeah, and also it was the time when all of the Becher school photographers were really shooting up and had huge international careers. And Andreas Gorski and Thomas Struth and Thomas Ruf and Candida Höfer and all of these people made a name for themselves and put Germany on the map for contemporary photography. And all of a sudden, contemporary photography out of Germany was something that people were looking for. Still, there was no gallery offering it but us. Yeah. So it was sort of a really lucky in that we sort of met the right moment, but then you also have to step up to the game. And, yeah, because, um, I mean, I know from experience running a gallery isn't easy. And no, it's for not. You, like, even, I guess for you, the concept of a gallery and collecting and going and seeing art wasn't foreign. Like you grew up with it. It was a natural thing that that's what you did. But there still must have been some kind of learning curve at the beginning. Oh, yeah, there's a huge learning curve, of course. For instance... You, well, I, you know, I started with very sort of high ambitions of being a gallery where you made discoveries. I was not interested in being another selling point for vintage material or established photographers. I always wanted to be a gallery where new and emerging positions would be discovered. And my aim was always to, at one point, come across work in a museum and for somebody to say, yeah, but I saw that 10 years ago already at Robert Morad's place. Yeah. And that was sort of what I was going for. But then you start to realize doing it <laughs> that 
selling new and emerging positions in contemporary photography starts at a pretty low price point in order to actually make sales happen. Yeah. And you also pretty much early realize that at that price point, there's no way of making it work economically. So very early on in two years into the program, we switched around and we started inviting more established uh, photographers and bigger names. And it was through an Elliot Irvid show that I did. That, oh, wow. that, that was okay. the first show that really made money. Yeah. And uh, that's when I learned that just as in publishing, if you want to do an interesting publishing house, you have to have one or two best-selling authors in order to be able to afford the young poets. You know, that's sort of what most businesses in this industry do. So since then, we've always still had a very much a focus on new and emerging positions, but we tried to then argue that whatever happens today in contemporary production doesn't just fall out of a blue skies. Uh, you know, photographers who led the way, Thomas Höpke always says, were standing on the shoulders of giants. And I felt that it made sense even for a gallery that wanted to mainly show contemporary work to from time to time show a very established master of the field in order to illustrate where the references are and where maybe contemporary work stems from. So we started to work with Magnum. We had a Bruce Gilden show. We had an Elliot Irvich show. We had a Thomas Höpker show. But those would remain guest shows and the representational work of the gallery was still very much focused on new people and young positions. Yeah. Because did bringing in those, let's say, more established artists, did that also help attract people that wouldn't necessarily go out of their way to see a photography exhibition? Because in a lot of contemporary galleries, it's typically paintings or sculpture or now like installations quite popular and people are maybe less inclined to go and look at just photography yeah. did having the kind of Elliot Erwitt shows and Bruce Gilden and those ones where there's a bit of overlap to contemporary art did that help kind of educate people or at least make them aware that there's a bit more there than just yeah I think it helped it also but the interesting thing it also works both ways it's also interesting for established positions to be seen in this contemporary young context mm. you know to be still to still be relevant yeah. I mean, Elliot Irvid, by the time we did the show with him, was already in his 80s. And to be shown in a space that normally shows 25-year-olds was an interesting context for him. I mean, you know, in the end, in retrospect, it all made perfect sense. But actually, it was just a pure coincidental situation. Elliot Irvid had received an award the Henry Nunnan Award, a Lifetime Achievement in Photography in Hamburg. And he called his gallery. Oh my God, my dog is farting. Yeah, just caught the smell. <laughs> Jesus. Um, guys, you should be happy that podcasts do not transmit smell because I have a little French bulldog and she just... Made her, made her presence known. <laughs> made her presence known. Let's put it that way. Anyway, Elliot Irvin had received this award and he called his gallery camera work in Hamburg and said, I'm coming to town since I'm there, let's do a little print sale. And camera work had just closed their Hamburg space and moved to Berlin. Oh, okay. um, and the lady who ran the space for them in Hamburg had been to an opening at my gallery the night before. Mm -hmm. And she had him on the phone and she said, well, Elliot, we'd love to do that, but we can't. We closed down the Hamburg space. We're moving to Berlin. But just last night, I was at this opening. There's this new young gallery in town that focuses on photography. Maybe talk to them. Maybe they can do something for you. And so Elliot Irvin called me. Wow. I thought I was being pranked. Yeah. And uh, and uh, <laughs> he said, yeah, he described the situation. He's coming to town. Let's do a show. And I was like, yeah, sure. And he said, we should meet maybe over lunch and discuss it. And I'm like, sure, when's good? And he said, Wednesday. And I said, all right, let's do Wednesday. And then it turned out he meant Wednesday in New York, of course. So I got onto a plane and I flew <laughs> to New York to uh, have lunch with Elliot Irvin. And that was about two or three years into the gallery. Yeah. yeah, wow. And then we had the show. And Hamburg is, how do I put this nicely? A conservative town. Mm -hmm. But Elliot Irvin prints, of course, work great there. 
and I don't know how many little dogs and big sandals we sold. It's it was a really really successful show, and for the for me also, it was the first time that I realized oh that so there is money in this business because I was about to lose hope. Yeah, um, and ever since that. We, we've kept that equation going and uh, it worked great for us. Yeah. It's like having that balance of sort of newer artists, more sort of fresh perspectives, but then having some of the kind of more classical established photographers as well. Yeah. And still working with that concept of representing new work and then occasionally inviting an established voice. So I did a John DiVola show last year, for instance, and uh, there's going to be a Christopher Anderson show this year. And yeah, so we have sort of the more prominent names on the schedule for exhibitions, but they're actually not in representation. Oh, okay. So they're guest yeah, shows. They're guest shows, but in our booths and art fairs, we really want to be the gallery where you make a discovery. Yeah, uh, okay. It's, there's enough having pen vintage pens out there i mean they're beautiful mm -hmm. and i'd love to have one <laughs> but uh i feel the also the reason why the gallery has been quite successful in art fairs and also in ap applying to art fairs is because our program is very much our own mm -hmm. and we very much try to be this place where you, you see fresh and young and new and interesting work yeah i was going to ask you about fairs later but seeing as you've already brought it up how soon did you start doing fairs after you opened in hamburg coincides with the elliot Irvid show funny oh, enough okay yeah <laughs> Because Elliot at that lunch told me that he had worked for a long time with a, a private dealer in uh, Hamburg, Erma Sterz. Erma Sterz used to be the director for FC Gundlach during the time that he ran a gallery in Hamburg at the bunker in Feldstraße. And when he closed the gallery, she carried on selling out of her own inventory. She had wonderful work. I saw William Eccleston prints in her house. They were just stunning. And she did it very professionally. She was in APAD for many years and had a booth. And he told me to just call her up. And he said, well, actually, most of the prints that we selected now, because we had decided on a selection of prints that we wanted to show. And he said, well, most of them are actually in Emma Stas's inventory. They're all in Hamburg. So why don't you just call her and work on the show with her? And Emma turned out to be the most wonderful person. And she really had a key role in furthering the gallery because it was her who then, while we were working on the Elliot Irvid show, asked me the question, do you plan on going on to art fairs? But you know, I had opened the gallery in 2004 and this was 2006 or 2007, maybe spring 2007. And I was three years into the gallery and I felt it was too early yeah. to sort of apply to art fairs. And, but Emma was a, a sort of, a, you know, this, the very sort of experienced seasoned dealer who told me, listen, Hamburg's a wonderful town, but if you really want to make it in this market, you have to go to art fairs. You have to reach out. There's not the kind of market and clientele here in town to actually support the kind of gallery that you have envisioned. So, you know, you better stretch yourself and reach out and go Whoa, to okay. art fairs. And uh, I said, well, Emma, that's a great <laughs> idea. Um, it's just, you know, I've, I'm new to the market. The, I've, we've been doing this. We've been dabbling for three years and we're trying to sort of get our footing. And and she said, oh, that's the least of my worries. And she got her phone out and she called Stephen Cohn, who in LA is a dealer who at that point was preparing an art fair to run along Art Basel in Miami that December, Photo Miami. And she called him and said, Steve, I'm standing here with Robert Morat, who just, he's a wonderful, you know, young gallerist and he deserves a booth. You should give him a, a booth in your fair. And she handed over the phone and I spoke to Stephen Cohen and he said, so I hear I give you a booth. And I said, yeah, I heard it as well. And he says, all right, deal. And then I found myself in December flying to Miami for our first art fair presentation and art fair participation and that was december 2007 so then at that point three years into the gallery wow okay. a little early but 2007 was an amazing year it was sort of the very peak of that completely over the top crazy art basel miami beach hype you know puff daddy would 
throw huge beach parties and you know it was this celebrity studded event that everybody sort of now remembers fondly and it was also a moment where there was a lot of money in the market the economy was doing well you know the u.s in 2007 was a healthy wealthy economy mm-hmm. so we shipped all sorts of works to miami and we completely sold out the booth oh my goodness um and i called emma and said emma i cannot thank you enough and also now I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, so that was a great first experience. I was incredibly nervous. I remember I couldn't sleep for a week before we, because I, in my head, all the things that can go wrong with an art fair participation, you know, your stuff gets stuck in customs, whatever, you know, it gets damaged. Everything was in my head all the time. And I was, I was really nervous, but on the, on the other end, also really excited to be going. And then since that turned out to be such a great experience we booked the same fair again of course and i was hyped up and all excited about returning to miami but now we're talking at december 2008 and that was a very different story yeah lehman brothers had crashed just two weeks prior to the fair uh, the economy the global economy was in falling into some sort of an abyss there was nothing going on we had taken out this huge booth after the you know the success in 2007 i felt like wow now you know we'll be you know so i shipped over all sorts of stuff the booth was huge and big and i stood there and we did not sell us it's not true we sold one little piece by joachim eskerson so the very first two art fairs that I ever went to were the most successful and the most disastrous back to back in two years. So I felt like I've gone through the entire roller coaster of that volatile market that is the art market within like a year period, (laughs) which felt really strange. And then after 2008, it took a while for the art market to recover and you know, we just carried on and did our thing. And for us, that time was actually, it was a good test because I felt if we survive this, the gallery will be really solid and healthy and strong. And also, it was also, as always, I'm afraid to say, it's also always a moment of opportunity Mm. because 2008 APAD in New York did not manage to fill their fare with members because people were either closing their businesses or didn't have the money to participate in the fair. So they were looking at interesting new galleries to add to their Worcester. So APAD reached out and invited me to show in New York in 2008. So 2008, we did New York. Uh, sorry, 2009. 2009, yeah. It was the spring after the 2008 uh, Miami Fair. And even though we did not sell well, because the spring 2009 was just as bad as December 2008, (laughs) but Guillaume Pien, at that time director of Paris Photo, saw our booth in, in New York at APAD. And he had the same problem. He couldn't fill his fare in that year. So we applied and got a booth. in Paris in 2009. And, you know, then you have that opportunity and you are in all of a sudden find yourself in Paris Photo, which is exactly five years after we opened the gallery, 2004. And that was always my goal. Paris Photo was always like, if I make it there, that's like the art basel of photography affairs. I thought if, if I ever make it into Paris Photo, you know, that would be sort of when the gallery is at is, is a success. And so we found ourselves in 2009 in November at Paris Photo and a seasoned dealer who's now a close friend told me, he said, listen, you're not going to sell anything this year because nobody will. And uh, since you can just forget about that, take the opportunity and make a really, really good booth. Do a really strong, edgy, Mm-hmm. interesting booth don't play it safe don't do it commercial because it's not no going to be buying. successful this year anyway yeah but rise to the occasion and give a really good first impression 
And I think we succeeded in doing that because ever since 2009, we have been back at Paris Photo every year. And it has become a great success story for us. It's also defined the gallery very much uh, that we're in, in Paris Photo. We created a great network of contacts of clients and collectors and curators for us in Paris. And that has to do with the difficult market in Hamburg. We really became a fair gallery. We yeah. did a lot of art fairs and that's a very special context to be in. It's very demanding, also physically very demanding. But I think that's the same for a lot of galleries, isn't it? You're in an environment that's more conducive to sales than if you're just showing work in your space. And I think there's lots of galleries that are doing kind of eight or nine fairs a year yeah. or even five or six fairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're more on the road than you are actually in yeah. your space. Yeah. Like how is it, if that was a similar experience for you, how is it different planning exhibitions in the physical gallery versus at a fair? Because it sounds like at Parifoto you were like, okay, we're a contemporary gallery, we're edgy, we're showing different things, we're going to do that at art fairs, we're not going to play it safe. Yeah, well, that's what we do. I've played around with the concept of presentations at the art fairs a lot. And of course, you cannot provide the kind of context for a body of work that you can in a gallery show. Mm -hmm. So curating or planning for an art fair booth and curating or planning for a show in a gallery space are two completely entirely different animals. From my experience now, after doing this for 20 years or almost, we are... Now, at this point, what we do is that we regard our participation in Paris Photo in November as the one big art fair participation mm -hmm. where we try to show a cross-section of our program. So we will always stick to the idea of giving each artist one wall in order to be able to show context and mm -hmm. to be able to show a project. I don't like those overhung booths where you get pictures stuck yeah. on top of each other and you have like 60 artists in one booth. I don't think that works. Not for my kind of work. I mean, it does for other galleries, but not for me. I try to keep it clean and a little minimalistic and with a lot of white space. Mm -hmm. And I literally take three or four artists to the booth depending on how many walls I get. And my concept really is one artist per wall in Paris. The other art fairs that we do, mostly Photo London, Unseen, the New York Photography Fair, all of those fairs, Photo Basel last year, we try to maybe rent out a smaller booth, but then give it a solo presentation. Okay. So in all of the, uh, the other art fairs that we do, we always have a, the current project that currently occupies the gallery. It was last year in the fall season, it was Jessica Buckhouse's cutouts. So we showed them very intensively. We gave her a solo booth in Basel. We gave her a solo booth in London and then a big wall in Paris. And that's what we continued doing this year. We gave Hannah Hughes a solo show in Photo London. Hannah Hughes is the latest addition to our gallery program. She will also get a big wall in Paris Photo. So that's sort of what we do right now. And then if you have three walls, like most art fair booths are like U-shaped yeah. wide cubes. And then if you curate one artist and one project by one artist, then you really get to do a nicely curated, you know, elegant booth. And... Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. So the fairs outside of Paris that you do are more like an extension of what you're currently doing in the gallery yeah. rather than thinking, oh, what have I shown previously? What's going to sell? It's like, no, this is what we're promoting at the moment. We'll take that to London. And the people that aren't going to come to Berlin to exactly. see it, we'll get exactly. to see it there. And also we are trying to focus our PR power or put our PR power behind the one project or the one artist that currently is sort of my main focus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the last six months, that was Jessica Backhouse's work. Now we're very much concerned with Hannah Hughes collages. Now we will announce the representation for a new position in fall and then give them a big solo show in Unseen in Amsterdam in September. That's Lena Amwart and Zoe Meyer, uh, two Swiss photographers who work as an artist 
couple and who do brilliant still life work. And it was just shown in Arles and we will give them a solo booth in Amsterdam and then a show at the gallery next year. So that's sort of what we do right now. I try to focus a little more than... Yeah, when did you make the change? Because I think for a long period, I always remember there was always multiple shows at the gallery, different things you're showing at fairs. Is it just during Corona that you've made the switch or just thinking after, say, almost 20 years of doing the gallery, like, let's take a different approach? Because you were quite busy before. If I think back to when we first met, you had two spaces. You were in Hamburg, you were in Berlin, doing lots of fairs. Is it just the kind of natural progression that I don't need to be doing everything everywhere? Yeah, exactly. It was even worse than that. When we first met, I had two spaces in Hamburg and one oh. in, uh, in Berlin. So we had always three shows oh, gosh. up. That's a lot. At the same time, plus art fairs, plus the festivals. And at some point you realize that people cannot take all of that in. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. It's also quite costly because you produce all these shows or you ship them or, you you know, there's always a huge investment also involved. And it was a little different in Hamburg because whoever was interested in contemporary photography and was in Hamburg or came to Hamburg would always make sure not to miss the show that was up at my gallery because there wasn't that many other places where you could see contemporary photography. And so... Whenever I had to show up after a couple of weeks, I always felt, all right, everybody saw it next. Yeah. Here in Berlin, I feel like there is so much on offer. There's so much to see. And you just have to allow for people some time to come in and see the work. And it is actually through the pandemic years, the years 2020 and 21, where I had to cancel a lot of shows. For instance, in the spring of 2020, we had just installed a show of landscape studies by Roger Eberhardt, interesting socio-political work about former border demarcation lines and in the landscape. It was a brilliant human territoriality, brilliant body of work. And it was up in the gallery and we had installed it and then we had to go into lockdown and then it sat there and was waiting for us to you know for us to be able to open the gallery again and because there was so much uncertainty about how it would go on i canceled everything else that year yeah so we ended up opening roger then in may after we returned from the first lockdown and then that show was up from may to christmas basically yeah. i think there was one other show that year Oh, yes, we had invited Max Pinkers to do the margins of access during the European month of photography. That was the second show that year. So that year we had two shows. And still, we sold pretty well. Wow. We actually did really good business that <laughs> year. Goodness. There was no costs. People didn't travel. They didn't go to dinners. They had a lot of money on their sides. It was a medical or a health crisis and not an economic one, mm. mind you. Yeah. And so 2020 was a great year, actually, honestly. I never had to apply for any support from the state or anything because I sat in lockdown on my sofa and people literally called me and we sold on the phone. So it was actually a really good year, to be honest. It was very different in 21. Because by the spring of 21, the money had been spent. And the, in January 21, when we went into the next lockdown, that's when it got rough. Yeah. But 2020 was very okay with one show or two shows at the gallery that year. And from that sort of made me realize it's actually totally okay to yeah. cut down a bit and to do a little less. And now, I mean, we still do five shows a year now. Mm-hmm. And we're still busy catching up on shows that had been scheduled two years ago and that had been rescheduled and rescheduled and that we're finally showing now. The two last shows, Martin Lange's Ghost Witness and the current show, uh, José Pedro Cortés, both had been rescheduled, I think, about four times until we finally now got to show them. But, you know, there's a show opening in January to kick off the year. Then there's a show for Gallery Weekend around... March and, May, yeah. March and May. And then we have a summer show opening in May. And then we close the gallery in August. And then there's two shows in winter, in f- one for fall and one for winter. And that's 
five shows, that's still a, an okay amount, I feel. But before that, we had up to 20 shows a year because there were three spaces. We did six shows in each space and then sometimes a little book launch in between. And then because Hamburg was so lame with sales, we had to travel. So yeah. we, had to, we did all these <laughs> fairs. And honestly, there was a point about seven years ago, 2015, just before I moved here to Berlin, there was a point where I felt like I can physically not carry on like this yeah it's absolutely just really demanding and i didn't want to do all these fairs anymore and like one show after the other it just it got really a little crazy and the other thing i had to learn and that's another lesson that everybody who runs a business has to learn at some point is to say no to people because of course artists are interested in showing their work. And of course, the artists that we are representing at the gallery are entitled to a show at the space. And I am, you know, devoted to showing their work. But in order to make it work for me, you have to just put it in some sort of a balance, you know. So you have to say no a couple of more times, which doesn't matter because you say no 20 times a day anyway. Yeah. So now you say it 25 times. And I just cut down a little and I realized it's so much healthier and it's so much more interesting business-wise also because you cut down costs. You have half the shipping, half the insurance, half the framing costs, mm -hmm. and you still, you know, establish a good network of clients and you still have sales. And so uh, it's made a huge impact to cut down. And the second huge impact was the move to Berlin, of course. Yeah. Because did you have much to do with Berlin up until that point? Did you use stuff and travel from Hamburg or it was I a had bit of a... Opened, I had opened a little project space in Berlin in 2010 because I had started showing in Art Fest in 2007 and we started reaching out to international clients and they always told me, Okay, yeah, you know, it's a shame Why? you're not in <laughs> Berlin because we come there sometime, but we never go to Hamburg. And so I started doing this little project space in Berlin in 2010 and that sort of got more and more important for me and I was traveling back and forth but that added to the stress of having all these shows up all the time and all these art fairs and then the second space in Berlin so that meant I was in the train a lot between Hamburg and Berlin and I also realized or felt like I was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. So whenever I was in Hamburg, somebody from Berlin called, oh. it's a shame I'm missing you. I'm just in. And it was this big New York collector that we just had a great sale to last year and that I really would love to have caught up with. But you know, here I was in Hamburg. Or the other way around, I would be in the train to Berlin and somebody would say, I'm just in outside your gallery. Are you there? I'm like, uh, nope, I am in Berlin. So I had to sort of yeah. focus on one of the two and the decision was pretty easy. And the second thing that was great about moving to Berlin is that the, the outreach is so much better here. You know, the visibility and the attention that we get for our work here is so much better than in Hamburg. And I feel like I have to do less fairs now. Oh, really? So I'm cutting, I cut down fairs a couple of years ago. We now do three or sometimes only two one in spring and one in fall and then maybe another one in spring but that's it it's, yeah wow it's usually paris photo in fall and then either london or amsterdam in spring i've stopped doing new york when trump was elected <laughs> i have not gone back since and until we are offered a really interesting contemporary photography art fair in the us i'm not going back there yeah I mean, I guess from your previous experience, you probably already have the clients and they already traveled to Paris. So yeah. I don't know how much sense that it would make. Maybe if you were starting, it would probably make more sense. But I think sort of 20 years of experience. Yeah. And I've, I'm, yeah, we've really done a lot of work in the US and we have a lot of really good clients in the US. But those contacts also sort of die down or die out if you don't keep at it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to travel and you have to see the people. And of course you meet them in art fairs. And even though I don't exhibit, I still travel to art fairs. You would maybe guess that 
if you do them constantly, you take a break if you don't exhibit and don't go. But still, of course, you do because you meet people and you have a conversation. And Yeah, it's just funny because sometimes it's nice to go and not be showing because then you Absolutely. have time to go and yeah. see people. That's the entire idea of Arl, by the way. Yeah. I love it because, uh, you know, I don't sell anything. I don't have a booth or anything. <laughs> it's, a, it's a festival. So... You're in your flip-flops and you, you know, run through the south of France in July. It's wonderful. You drink a little too much rosé, but other than that, it's an amazing experience <laughs> because you don't have any pressure to showing or working. It's really just casual encounters, but there's always something that comes from it. There's always a good conversation or a good introduction. And I always leave Arl richer than before. I always feel it's a great, great place to be. Yeah. Well, I remember when I very first opened, one of the first things you said to me was, oh, I'll see you in Arl then. And I had no idea what it was. I knew about Parry Photo and I'd been and I'd been to all these other events. I thought, what's Arl? <laughs> but you're right. And I think, I guess it's obvious to us having done fairs and participated in festivals and visited them. But for, I guess for artists and maybe just the kind of public in general, both environments are just places to go and see a lot of work at one time, yeah. but they are quite different, aren't they? Very different. Very. I mean, for us, they're different. I mean, yeah. for, a, for a visitor, I mean, in a festival in Arles, you get a curated festival of different shows spread out throughout the city, even beyond the city. One of the best shows I saw in Arles this year was in Nîmes. You know, so you do get to get around a bit. And the wonderful thing about Arl is it drags on for a week, the opening week. Mm -hmm. It's always the first week of July. And it's so nice because you can sort of decide for yourself how much socializing and how much art viewing you want to do. If you've had enough for the day, you go to the beach or sit in your garden or you don't. You know, it's, it's, for me, it's a big difference because, of course, in art fairs, we have invested a lot of money. Yeah. The galleries pay ridiculous fees to rent out booths and show in art fairs. And when we get there, the first couple of days, we are under enormous pressure to make that money back because only once we've made the money back does the money making begin. Yeah. You know, it's, you have to, it's an enormous pressure situation financially. And, you know, you try to forget about it because you already paid for it months ago, so it doesn't matter and you move on. But of course, you try to make it work economically and financially and the costs are enormous. And if you consider that the artist gets their 50% share of every sale, which of course they're entitled to, and then we pay taxes on what we do and then have to come up with all the financing for the shipping and the insurance and the and uh, you know, and the dinners and the hotels and everything. It's quite an undertaking and it doesn't always work out. You know, you do go to art fairs and you don't make your money back. But then, you know, you had a good curator over who gives one of your artists a show. You had a good publisher over. Maybe there's a book project coming from it. There's always something to be gained in an art fair, even if it is in sales. Yeah. I mean, that's also why these virtual online art fairs don't really work because they're so reduced to the selling. But that's not what art fairs are all about. Of course, they are commercial enterprises in their commercial events, but they're very important places of encounter and exchange. And especially Paris Photo, more than any other art fair I know, is a meeting place also for artists and curators. Because, you know, a lot of artists sort of try to stay away from the mercantile aspects <laughs> of uh, what they do and leave that dirty business to us. But Paris is different. Paris is really a meeting place. And especially if it happens in the Grand Palais, because there there's more space. More, to, exactly, more space. Yeah. More space to sit down and talk. The ephemer is wonderful for us because everything is a little more human scale and it has carpet and a textile ceiling, so you don't have to shout at the top of your lungs for a week, which you do in Grand Palais. So for us, the ephemer is wonderful. I love it. But for the, the social aspect of the art fair that I just described, it's a little difficult because there's no benches, there's not a lot of space to sit down. But that's really a really important aspect. And in my mind, that was always the main problem of you cannot substitute 
the moments of serendipity. You cannot replace the moment of wandering through an art fair and finding a piece that you did not know you were looking for. Mm, you true. know, it's this the, this coup de foudre, this this falling in love with the piece. Because in an, in a virtual art fair, you need to know exactly what you're looking for. So you you know, and the, the entire idea of wandering and and also the feverish idea of there's a certain urgency in buying i mean there's a certain art fairs create this buzz that is important for us to sell it's difficult enough selling additional work because people never feel like there's an urgency to make a purchase decision that's what i learned in london this year because we showed Hannah Usework, who does collages and sells unique pieces. Yeah. And for the very first time, collectors could not go, oh, you know, it's an additioned piece. I'll think about it. And if and I don't mind if I don't buy the one of five. I can buy the three of five or the four of five in a half a year if I want. This time we had unique pieces and I told everybody working at my booth, we will not put pieces on hold for anyone. Mm -hmm. Don't make reservations. If they don't want it, they can move on and we will sell it to somebody else. And that's exactly what happened. So we did great in London. Oh, wow. We, okay. Again, sold out the entire booth. And that is because, honestly, I think we did at the expense of our colleagues there, I must admit, because they offered additional work and, you know, they didn't have that kind of pressure point. Whereas I was selling unique pieces and I could tell people, you know, we have such a buzz here. I'm sure we will sell it to somebody else if you don't want it. You can have a coffee. Think about it for 10 minutes. But after that, I'm going to sell it to somebody else. Yeah. And that was great. <laughs> so and i'm gonna take the work to paris photo this year and i hope it just goes the same way given that you do show a lot of new work emerging artists now in 2022 what would be like some advice you would say for an undiscovered voice in photography or someone that's sort of done a few projects they're looking to try to get into a gallery or they're thinking what do i need to do next or i feel like i'm doing everything i can but it's just not happening like what would you say like have you tried this well i would always say the most important thing is to get your work seen may it be in a book publication or a festival or a museum group show try to connect with curators and publishers and also now social media is such a huge aspect mm -hmm. also and try to get your work out there a gallery loves to discover work. I mean, we do get a lot of people coming in for portfolio reviews and I do look at a lot of work, but what all galleries love is finding people instead of, you know, them coming to you. And we do, you know, travel to festivals. I'm constantly trying to be updated on what's going on in the publishing world and then just reach out. Sometimes that, gatekeeping situation is just also sheer luck honestly but to me it's you know when i sell in an art fair same thing it's just sheer luck yeah you know you have wonderful work up but you need this one or these two clients to buy to make it work for you and they walk by your booth and maybe their phone rings in the wrong moment mm. or they have a fight with their spouse that second or whatever. You know, there's so many things that have to come together in order to make it work. And that's the disturbing news. There's a good, good portion of just luck. Yeah. No, I, I would totally agree with you. That. Know, you know, you, you need to. But the thing is, if the moment occurs, you have to be ready and the work has to be good. And you know, if you want to rise to the occasion, whenever it occurs, you have to be prepared. So do the best work that you can, get it out there and have it seen. And eventually a gallery will pick it up and also connect with your fellow artists, connect with your peer group. Because what I listen most to is when my artists, who I represent at the gallery, tell me they ran into something interesting. If an artist I represent calls me and says, Robert, I met somebody the other day. Their work is really strong. 
do me a favor, look at it. I always will do that. And I think most, if not all artists I work with, that's how I met them. I met them through another artist that I found interesting, referencing me towards them or referencing them towards me. So, you know, Arl is a good example. Just be out there. And, you know, when you get there, it can be a little too much because there's so much going on and everybody's running around all the time. And sometimes you leave Arl after a week and nothing came of it. But there always is the chance for a great encounter there. And uh, it certainly won't happen if you don't go. Exactly. So, um, (laughs) and that's also, again, why I'm so confident that the art world that we live in won't change that much over the digital changes of, of things because people still want a personal encounter. People still want a physical experience when they see a piece. I'm also, for instance, that entire NFT scene, I'm staying away because yeah, <laughs> I don't care. It could be stupid. I don't know. A lot of my colleagues have sort of run up to it and done great with it. I don't know. I don't care because it's just <laughs> interesting. To, the thing about NFTs is whenever I have a conversation about it, it's always about money or technology. It's never about content it's never about the visual yeah what do i actually look at and whenever i actually look at it it's pretty banal so i don't care that might be a really stupid old fart (laughs) 51 year old position to take but i am an old fart so there we go (laughs) yeah it's all i mean it for me the entire joy of doing this comes down to personal encounter social interaction and physical presence in space yeah absolutely well i think on that note i'm great that we got to do this yes in person absolutely so, sitting across from Drinking one another water in the berlin summer <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was really good thank you very much thank you for coming by i hope you enjoyed my interview with robert moratz i always appreciate how candid he is about the business of running a gallery and grateful that he could share some of these insights on the podcast In the show notes, you can find links to Robert's social media and websites. You can visit Robert Morat Gallery at 107 Linienstrasse in Berlin-Mitte. Otherwise, visit his booth at Photo London or Paris Photo. And of course, find him in Arles during the opening week of the festival. If you'd like to know more about this or previous episodes of the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Subtext and Discourse Artworld Podcast is streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and every major podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else who would appreciate it, please send them a link so they can enjoy it too. That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Michael Dooney and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.